Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's featured writer is Rurik Davidson, past winner of Aurealis and Ditmar Awards, whose latest collection, the Library of Forgotten Books has just been released by P.S. Publishing. Rurik's best known for the type of story that inhabits that surreal space between fantasy and horror and plays with the nature of identity, desire and reality. His story for TISF, the Ditmar award-winning The Fear of White, is just such a piece about a job from hell. Or is it, perhaps, a job in hell? At night, the doors frighten Lucy. She closes the hallway door and pretends they're not there at all, but it makes no difference. At other times, she sneaks into the hallway and tries the six door handles which run along the right-hand wall. They're always locked. Sometimes he listens, yet hears nothing. No matter what he imagines, torture instruments that burst people's eardrums with long needles, cult meetings, where the brains of live animals are eaten from their very skulls. The shadowy nothingness is worse. The absence of clues terrifies him. Lucien sleeps in the fold-out bed in the lounge room, which doubles as an office. But his dreams are troubled. They're filled with doors and frightening owls that look down upon him knowingly with their huge yellow eyes. Sometimes in these dreams, he has to arrange sheets of white paper into piles but a wind constantly blows them from his clutching hands. His mother's death started it all. After sitting in that hospital room, holding her leathery hand in silence, until the second stroke killed her, Lucien felt prompted into action. He found the advertisement in the paper. It read, Exceptional opportunity for live-in job, payment negotiable. He called and shortly afterwards met Mr Two for the interview. Mr. Two wore a stiff white suit, and the hairs of his head were alternately jet black and icy white. Although this gave the impression of grey from a distance, Lucien had never noticed such a contrast before. Lucien thought of Mr. Two as an eastern name, though Mr. Two was not Asian, nor did he speak with any accent. Though his sentences were strange and stilted, Mr. Two's hair was, in fact, his only striking feature. Otherwise, he could have passed by on the street without any impression at all. For this reason, he seemed to have hidden death, as if the most important parts of him lay beneath his surfaces. Your job is simple, but requires patience. Mr. Two had a whispery voice, as if paper rustled behind his words. Remember, he said, real gold is not afraid of the fire of the crucible. He told Tara in the coffee shop, 
I'm taking this job full time, every day. Her face appeared lined, as if she had suddenly aged. So this is your way of doing it. Doing what? You know, running, sealing yourself away. I'm finally doing something for myself, he said. Tara was not aware of anything around them. Her face was stricken. Why? Haven't I always been there when you needed me? I don't understand. There was nothing for Lucian to say. How could he explain it to her when he wasn't sure of it himself? He wanted to achieve something. He wanted freedom. But lurking beneath these desires, he felt a strange, frightening emotion that he couldn't place. And then he quietly repressed. Do you really want to destroy yourself? said Tara. Don't we all? he said half-heartedly. They sat there, pushing their salads across their plates as they finally left. Within a week, Mr. Two led Lucian through the massive building to the apartment to begin the job. Lucian is relieved to be alone, to have time to think, to be away from the ring of the phone. The apartment, thank God, does not have a phone. Nor does it have any windows, which means his senses are dominated by the fluorescent light and white walls. There's only a small bathroom, a tiny kitchen, a hallway with the doors, and on the other side of the hallway, the room with the pool. Each morning he scrubs the red and brown fractured tiles in the pool room, which form a mosaic and have an exotic flavour, and Lucien imagines them to be Turkish. He takes special pleasure in cleaning the pool, so the water flickers in the artificial light. The pool room is the most beautiful. The others are just boxes. But he's always afraid when he's in the pool room because the six doors are between him and the main room at the front door. Someone could sneak through and make their way outside and Lucian would have failed. So he cleans as quietly as he can, always straining to hear the slightest noise, the creak of a door, the pad of footsteps. Lucian takes his job seriously. On the sixth night of the job, Lucian finds it doubly difficult to sleep. Not only do the doors weigh on his mind, but Mr. Two will be arriving in the morning expecting a report. There's nothing to communicate. No one has come through the doors. Nothing has happened to the doors. But the expectation of giving the report is enough to excite Lucian, who, despite being bright, has never held an important job. He has always been a drifter, floating between people and places like a boat between piers. This will be his first report to Mr. Two and he's anxious to make it professional. He's written it all down, using the old typewriter on the desk, but now, as he lies in his bed, tossing and turning, the doors frighten him. Mr. Two arrives the next morning. He sits at the desk and Lucian sits opposite him, nervously brushing back his short black hair. There's silence for a while as Mr. Two takes out a ballpoint pen and a pad from his briefcase. The briefcase, Lucian notices, is empty except for a few sheets of white paper. The paper has a cold, hard appearance in the soft case. The blankness of the paper frightens Lucian with its lack of structure, its absence of form. Vertigo strikes when he looks at it. He closes his eyes and looks away. Mr. Two clicks the pen in and out. Perhaps he is thinking. So, did anyone come through the doors? Mr. Two asks in his rustling voice. I wrote a report, 
It's right there in front of you. Let's see. Mr. Two picks up the report and reads. A minute later, he looks up over the top of his spectacles and says, So, nothing happened. No. I'm two and you are nine. What? My name is Mr. Two. T-U. You shall be called Mr. Nine. N-E-I-N. But, but my name is White, Lucian White. Even so, from now on you shall be Mr. Nine. Oh, okay. Mr. Two stands and walks to the front door. I'll see you next week, Nine. And remember, set yourself as the stamp. Mr. Two brings him a letter from Tara. I'm looking forward to see you again, it reads. I, I miss your gentle innocence. Lucian likes the sound of those words, but in other ways he wishes she's not written them. He does not like to think of himself as gentle or innocent. He likes to think of himself as important. And innocence and importance sits oddly together in his mind. He wishes he could see Tara also, but he knows he must stay and do the job. He must do something right, for once. Lucien returns one day from his swim to find that there are no longer six doors for him to watch. There are seven. At first glance he cannot believe it, but he counts them. One, two, three. There are seven. No question about it. He approaches door seven fearfully. The smell of something dead, or perhaps rotten, wafts suddenly into his nostrils. His eyes water as he tries a handle, but it is locked. Ah, Mr. Nine. Lucien jumps and turns. Mr. Two stands behind him. Is the smell coming from Mr. Two? There, there are seven doors, of course. But Mr. Two, before, there were only six. No, Mr. Nine, there have always been seven. Oh, no, I'm... But Lucian cannot process his thoughts. They come smashing one over the other like some terrible accident. Now, Mr. Nine, do you have a report? After Mr. Two leaves, Lucian sits in the middle of the floor. He thinks to himself, there were seven doors. Of course there were. I remember it now, distinctly. Why, he thinks, did I ever think there were six? Lucian worries all night and the next day. He might be losing his mind. One of Tara's letters reads, I slept with someone last night, an electrician. I don't know why I should tell you, but some part of me thinks you should know. When Mr. Two next arrives, Lucian asks him politely for his mobile phone. He needs to confront Tara about this betrayal. Of course, says Mr. Two. Lucian excuses himself and walks around to the hallway. There he sits, looking at the accusing doors as he calls Tara. Hello, she says. Hi. Oh, it's you. I didn't think I'd uh, hear from you. I cannot think of anything to say. Why are you calling? No reason. There's silence. Eventually, she says, Remember when your mother died? Remember how you needed me then? I need you now. I'm not going to wait around for you, you know. I know. Look, I'd better go. But call again if you like. She hangs up. Lucien stares at the doors. He remembers the cafe and the feeling of wretchedness and failure. 
Even now he feels nauseous. Even now he tries not to really recall the truth of it. Why, he thinks, didn't it work between us? He hadn't known then, just as he doesn't know now. All he can think is, I couldn't do it. I wasn't designed for it. As he gives Mr. Two the phone back, he starts to cry. Mr. Two puts a hand on his shoulder, and there's awkward silence between them. Sorry, Lucian says. It's of no consequence. I'll show you out. Lucian closes the door and thinks hard for hours. He wants Tara, yearning for the smell of her freshly shampooed hair. He begins to pack his suitcase. His heart beats quickly, knowing she will welcome him back, knowing everything will be all right, knowing he won't have to endure this task he has set himself. But when the suitcase is half-packed, he stops and begins to unpack it again. The job is, is like an out-of-control beast he's riding, white-knuckled and fearful. He cannot get off. Lucian walks back to the hallway to inspect the doors. He takes a sharp breath. Light flickers behind door five, like a poorly connected fluorescent bulb. He presses his head to the door, but everything is silent. When he looks again, the light is gone. Mr. Two, Lucian asks some weeks later. What is behind the doors? Mr. Two looks disappointed before his face regains its blankness. Your job cannot be done properly if you know. Mr. Two taps the side of his nose twice with his forefinger. Lucian feels embarrassed. He shouldn't have asked. Mr. Two passes Lucian the four letters silently, each with Tara's almost incomprehensible scrawl scattered across it. Lucian waits for Mr. Two to leave and opens them carefully in order. So from the previous three weeks and Lucian is angry. Mr. Two should have brought the letters earlier. Each is successively more frantic. Lucian, the first one reads, I think we should meet. When are you going to be finished with your job? Another explains, everything is going well. By the way, when are you returning to the outside? A third says simply, I'm leaving this apartment, our apartment. Don't write, I'm happier without you. This last is written in a frantic, crabbed style. What's happening? What about my questions? Is there hope for us? Lucian sits silently before composing his answer. At first, I thought that I would only do this job for a month or two, but I realise now how peaceful it is to be by oneself. I do not intend to come out soon, but would rather stay as long as Mr. Two will employ me. Finally, I think I am happy. When he is finished, Lucian puts his head in both hands. In the fifth month, he writes to her spontaneously, Tara, are you there? Will you write to me? I'm so lonely. He waits for a response. Each week, Mr. Two arrives and responds to Lucian's frantic questioning. Ah, letters. Let me see, Mr. Nine. No, none here. Sorry, maybe next week. Mr. Two smiles and nods his head, as if to say, everything is in its right place, is it not? After Mr. Two leaves, Lucian looks at himself in the mirror and realises he has finally done it. He has finally destroyed his life. Time passes. Mr. Two visits. Lucian passes him reports. The doors are always there. Noises, bumps and clatters, echo down the hallway, and Lucian investigates. But the sounds do not repeat and he wonders if it is just his imagination. After the sixth month, Lucian decides not to shave. 
He grows a beard and his black hair becomes long and matted. When he looks into the mirror, he's pleased with the change. He has the look of a wild man, eyes wide and dangerous, bony body with a slippery sheen. He stops writing reports for Mr. Two. Time bends and warps, merges into itself and stretches out. Each day is interchangeable with the next, each hour a discreet, self-contained moment. Things and events cease to be measured. They simply are, just as he is, simply Mr. Nine. And Mr. Nine loves the doors. They are the anchors that keep him from drifting away. Mr. Nine swims slowly across the pool, enjoying the flicker of the lights on the walls, the many colours of the room. He feels awake and alive in the pool room, as if he is connected to the matter around him, as if somehow he is everything. He is indeterminately related to the water and the mosaic, as if the colours are the outward projection of his own being. He turns, floats on his back and fancies he can see the air pushing itself into him, sucking itself out. He imagines the air inside him a part of him. We are one, he thinks the body beneath me, and me, the air. As he climbs out of the water and dries himself, he feels a soft touch of air on his body. He's startled and looks suddenly at the hair as they rise like some alien flora from his skin. He's not felt wind for months, or years, he cannot say. He has not felt cold. He walks from the pool room into the hallway. His towel drops from his hand. His breath freezes in his chest. His mouth drops slightly open. Door four is open. He runs over and grabs the handle, unsure what to do. He pulls it further open and looks down the corridor that leads away, white and featureless, before it turns left. He's terrified, as if confronted by dark knowledge he would prefer to forget. He closes the door suddenly, hearing it click as it locks. Mr. Nine runs to the main room, but it's empty. He checks the rest of the apartment, nothing. Mr. Nine paces across the floor. He runs his hands through his long hair. He pulls at his beard. He throws his head back in desperation. There's no avoiding it. He has failed. He was hired to watch the doors to record any and every event, to ensure a full chronicle of the doors was made. He throws himself onto the fold-out bed and closes his eyes. Despair grips him and, as he always does when depressed, he falls asleep, unable to bear the clean light of reality. When he wakes, he masturbates, his hand moving quickly, his head craned forward and off the bed, his eyes staring into another world. When he is finished, he lies back and stares at the blank roof. He sleeps, wakes, eats, cleans up, worries. There is a pain in his stomach, just below the right ribs. It could be cancer. It could be an ulcer. It could be the natural order of things taking revenge on him. Mr. Two opens the door and carries in his box of food. Mr. Nine, unshaven and unwashed, is on his feet, sweeping back his unkempt hair. One must look good for Mr. Two. One must make an impression on one's employer. Mr. Nine. Mr. Two. Mr. Two places the box of food on the floor and sits at the chair by the desk. Mr. Nine stands like a child at attention, his arms straight and awkward by his side, his eyes wide and alert. Where's your report? I... I haven't done one this week. I see. Mr. Nine, your work is slipping. You don't want me to replace you, do you? No, no, Mr. Two, but I haven't done a report in... 
in some time. You haven't done a report in some time, eh? Mr. Two cocks his head to one side sternly. Let me see. He opens his briefcase and takes out a blank sheet of paper. He examines it carefully. So you haven't. He replaces the sheet and looks again at Mr. Nine from beneath his eyebrows. Is there anything to say? Mr. Nine breathes in slowly, breathes out again, breathes in. The panic hits him. No, Mr. Two, he says, there's nothing to report. Mr. Two nods slowly, all the while looking at Mr. Nine. I see, he says, equally slowly. He squints his eyes and places his thumb and forefinger against his chin, as if to say, isn't that interesting? All right, I shall see you next week. Mr. Two stands and walks to the door. He opens it and halfway through turns back. Mr. Nine, remember, good luck never comes in pairs, but bad things never walk alone. Mr. Nine collapses back on the bed and presses his hand against the pain in his abdomen. The pressure seems to help, but the pain does not go away. From this point on, the pain will be his constant companion. Later, he approaches the door, which is now more frightening than ever before. Not only does he not know what lies behind them, but he feels anyone or anything might come through to his apartment. He feels violated, and everything around him somehow soiled. Perhaps someone has been in his room. Perhaps they will return. Nothing feels safe. Mr. Nine feels as if he's being watched. He presses his ear up against the doors. Behind door three, he can hear the sound of a machine whirring, almost like a helicopter. But the more he strains to hear, the more the sound recedes until it is only an echo in his memory. Time becomes marked by the pain in his abdomen and the worry in his mind. He wishes now he could talk to Tara, wishes he could see the sky, hear the sound of passing traffic. But everything must have its sacrifices, and he's really doing something here, really achieving something. Occasionally he presses his ear against door five and fancies he can hear a clattering and thumping, as if some broken machine continues to turn, pistons and pylons striking and grinding against each other. The sound saturates his dreams, which are filled also with seven doors that flap in the wind, even as he tries to shut them. He wakes from these dreams and presses his hands against his stomach. This is how Mr. Two finds him when he arrives in a whirlwind of fury. The front door swings dangerously on its hinges as Mr. Two throws his briefcase violently down, blank white pages spilling across the floor. Mr. Nine sits up, frightened by the sudden noise and action. For months things have been quiet. And now this, Mr. Two stares at him accusingly. So, Mr. Nine, you mean to say that no one has come through any of the six doors? Yes, says Mr. Nine. How do you expect me to believe you? They haven't. Honestly, they haven't. I should strike you with my fist, says Mr. Two. I should give you a blow to the head. No, Mr. Two, no one has come through. I've been doing the job as well as I can. I've been watching the doors every day. Fine. Mr. Two leans down and pushes all the paper back into his briefcase. When it is full, he walks to the door and turns back towards Mr. Nine. Mr. Nine, I've entrusted you with a job of the utmost importance. Remember, the participants' perspectives are clouded, while the bystanders' views are clear.
Mr. Two leaves before Mr. Nine can respond. Mr. Nine cannot bear it any longer. The money makes no difference. Nothing will keep him here. He throws his unfolded clothes into his suitcase, zips it up, opens the front door. The corridor leads far away from the room. He heads out with purpose. Mr. Two is gone, but he can remember the way. The walls are white and featureless around him. He rises at an intersection. Left or right? Left. Again another corridor. Again the featureless walls. Again an intersection. Right. A flight of stairs leading up. He cannot remember coming down a flight of stairs on the way in. What floor was the apartment on? The memories recede in his mind. He turns back and heads in the opposite direction. The myriad corridors crisscrossing by the decisions of his own life. With each one, he cannot be sure where he will end up. There are no doors, just corridors upon corridors, leading him ever onward. Finally, he descends a flight of stairs. Aha! The door to the outside. He opens it and finds himself back in his own room. Mr. Nine realises he cannot leave. He should have understood this, for he is no longer Lucian. He should have understood you can never, after all, go back. Pain becomes steadily worse. He staggers into the hallway to discover there are no longer seven doors in the hallway for him to watch. There are eight. Not again, he thinks. He presses his hands against his stomach and collapses to his knees. Sweat runs in rivulets down his face. He crawls across to door eight and places his ear against it. From somewhere, far away, comes the clicking and clattering of insect legs, or perhaps static from an off-station radio. He cannot be sure. As he crawls back towards the main room, his stomach feeling as if someone were stirring it like a soup, the sound resonates in his mind. He does not make it to the bed, but collapses on the floor. Where his clothes are soaked, his hair long and wet, his beard beaded with sweat. Heat rises to his face and he moans. Time passes. He rolls from one side to the other. He lies on his back, arms out like a cross. Drowning man occasionally bursts through the surface for air. He lies on his front, one knee bent at a right angle. He is aware of the stench of feces and the smell of urine. He passes in and out of consciousness as if the strange dreams he is having are drawing him down. He cannot escape them, but like a drowning man occasionally bursts through the surface for air. Mr. Two stands above him, white suit sharp and pressed, face blurry through the fever. Pick the flower when it is ready to be picked, says Mr. Two, and then he is gone. Somehow Mr. Nine crawls back to the hallway and counts the doors again. There are nine. One, two, three... Nine doors. He moans in pain and presses his hands to his stomach. But it no longer helps. The pain is immovable. Mr. Nine falls into unconsciousness before the nightmare vision of the nine doors. When he wakes, the fever has passed, though he is cold and wet. In his mind, he hears the voice of Mr. Two. My name is Mr. Two. Do you? You shall be Mr. Nine. N-E-I-N. Driven by some unknown purpose, he strides towards door two and grasps the handle. The handle turns and the door opens. He steps back and watches the door swing on its hinges. He takes a breath before stepping through the doorway and striding down a long corridor, aware of the same white walls. 
always white walls, smooth and featureless, the same deathly still air. The corridor turns, it continues on. It rises and takes a sharp left, descends and curves around to the right. A set of stairs lead up. It seems to double back and then double back again. He loses any sense of space and time. Finally, he reaches another door. He opens it and steps into a room he has never seen. Behind the desk sits Mr. Two, his briefcase on the table. He clicks his pen in and out, as if he has been waiting. Ah, Mr. Nine, says Mr. Two. Mr. Nine looks left and right. A flickering from behind him attracts his attention and he turns. Mounted on the wall above him are nine screens, each showing, from different angles, black and white images of his apartment. The bed in the main room, unmade and unwashed. The pool room with its flickering light. The tiny kitchen, the featureless bathroom and the nine doors. Mr. Nine stares at the images, unable to comprehend, unable to assimilate this new view of his world. Are you feeling better? asks Mr. Two. Mr. Nine simply stares. Don't be upset, man. You could have come here at any time. Mr. Two continues to click his pen. But the doors, the, the doors were locked. They were never locked. They were. Only in your mind, Mr. Nine. You wanted to believe they were locked. No. Mr. Two smiles his featureless smile and says, Crows everywhere are equally black. Have you been watching me? Mr. Two grins suddenly, as if he's embarrassed. Mr. Nine breaks into tears. He's angry at himself. He should never allow Mr. Two to see him cry. Not after this. Not after all that has happened. Who are you? Yes, who am I? Well, I'm not Mr. Two. You are. You are Mr. Two. And I'm Mr. Nine. Mr. Nine walks around the desk and stands over Mr. Two. There's no need to raise your voice. Mr. Two looks up calmly. You're a liar. Lucian, I'm not Mr. Two. Don't call me that. You're Mr. Two. Mr. Nine pushes Mr. Two in the shoulder, and the shoulder moves oddly. Mr. Nine takes a step backwards, as Mr. Two's shoulder gives way completely, segmenting into a thousand tiny pieces of paper, each one stacked on top of the other. Mr. Nine takes another step backwards as Mr. Two's shoulder collapses, and with it, his chest. The pieces of paper stacked one on top of each other, cut to make up the form of Mr. Two, give way completely, and Mr. Two's body sloughs onto the ground. Mr. Nine stares in disbelief. From far away, he hears a sigh, as if someone has finally been released from some kind of physical trial. Before him lie nothing but a thousand and more sheets of paper, covered in the scrawl of someone he knows. He picked some of the paper up. He was right. It's Tara's writing. But as he begins to read, the scroll fades and he is left with nothing but thousands of sheets of blank, white paper. Mr. Nine runs to the door behind the desk. He opens it and runs through a labyrinthine corridor, up and down and around. Stairs and passageways fill his mind as he finally comes to the door that will lead him away and out of the building. He throws open the door and finds himself back once more in his own apartment. He runs through the hallway and tries door five, another maze of turns in the door. He opens it and finds himself not in Mr. Two's room, 
as she had expected, but back again in the apartment. Panicked by a frightening insight, he tries door two, and just as he figured, Mr. Two's office has disappeared. He returns instead to his own room. Three times, through door eight, door three, door four, he runs, each time the same. Finally, he breaks down to a walk exhausted. He does not cry when he finds himself back in his own room. He tries door six, and so finds himself ultimately, inevitably, back in his own apartment. Mr. Nine is not afraid, for Mr. Nine has nothing to lose. Mr. Nine is nothing. Mr. Nine is a blank page. Mr. Nine puzzles over this riddle. He sits calmly and quietly on his bed and thinks. He thinks of his mother's death so long ago and of Tara. They are now the memories of another life, Lucian's memories. Yet as he thinks of them, as he really pictures them, Tara with her dreams of huts in the forest, the cafe where he had left her, Pain rises again, softly and somehow different than before. He is no longer enraged, no longer filled with desperation. He does not feel compelled to take action as he once did, where any action would do so long as he keeps moving. Things have subtly shifted beneath his surfaces. His configuration has changed. He is sad and weeps quietly. When he has finished, he slowly makes his way to the bathroom and showers. He cuts his hair with his blunt scissors. And if it is not exactly professional, at least it is short. He's surprised to find stress has turned half his hair white while the rest remains black. From a distance, it must give the impression of being grey. He shaves and is surprised by the face revealed beneath. He changes into clean clothes with a shirt and collar. He makes his bed just so, folded down the way Tara showed him to do it. He cleans the bathroom from top to bottom. He mops the floors, wipes the walls, cleans the pool, and sits briefly on the red and brown mosaic. Finally, when he is done, he packs what he wants to take with him and throws everything else in the bin, which he drops down the garbage chute in the wall. The place, he thinks, is now clean for its next occupant. He is ready to take his final action, to make his final move. He stands in the hallway and reaches out to the handle of door nine. He touches the cold metal, slowly turns it, and feels quiet satisfaction as the door clicks open. As he walks through door nine, Mr. Nine smiles weakly to himself. Down the corridors he passes to Mr. Two's office, where he sits down at the desk, picks up a phone. He dials a number. Hello? Yes, I'd like to place an advertisement. Yes, job opportunity. Mr. Nine meets Mark, who is young and eager, fresh-faced in the white office. There's something about Mark's manner, about the way he leans forward on the table in desperation. Mr. Nine finds familiar. It sets Mr. Nine thinking. He can remember someone. What was her name? It started with T. It is no good. The memory slips away into whiteness. Mr. Nine is dressed in a stiff suit and has shaved. Mark, is it? I'm Mr. Nine. We spoke on the phone. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I want to make something of myself. Your job is simple, but requires patience. Now, I'm Mr. Nine. N-E-I-N. 
and you're Mr. Two. T-U. But my name is Mark. Even so, you are now Mr. Two. Later, Mr. Nine sits behind the desk watching the television screens on the wall. On the screens he can see Mark, wandering about the apartment. Mark makes his way to the corridor, where there are nine doors. He pushes his ear up against the door. It appears that he is listening. It's as if he cannot tell what is behind them. Mr. Nine smiles. It will not be long now, until his liberation. This month's review book is Song of Scarabius by Sarah Creasy. To say that I like science fiction would be a gross understatement. I've read so much of it over the decades, I think it's actually inscribed in my genome. And when I come across the real deal, It's like a tailored virus that's been specifically designed to infect me. As I read it, I can feel its specially crafted projections locking onto my DNA and promoting the kind of deep body feeling that I just can't get from anything else. Song of Scarabius is the real deal. It's the kind of book that anyone who wants to know how to write a compelling, comprehensively imagined science fiction novel should snap up and devour. Edie is a cipher take. She's trained in the machine language necessary to prime and interact with biosife seeds, powerful technology that lets the crib rewrite the genetic code of a planet to make it fit for human habitation. It's the ultimate in terraforming, Star Trek's genesis device taken to its logical conclusion. But Edie is an unwilling servant of the crib, which, much like Firefly's Alliance, isn't exactly the most benevolent form of government you can imagine holding the inhabitants of Biosife reform planets to ransom for continuing payments lest the Biosife technology be turned off and their planets revert to their native form. So when Edie is kidnapped by a group of Biosife seed privateers, she's not entirely unhappy, until she finds out that their ultimate goal is to visit the planet Scarabius, site of one of Edie's earliest missions and her biggest failure. There are a great many things to like about Scarabius. Sarah Creasy's background gives her an excellent grasp of the kind of technology she theorises which makes the Biosife seed functions and drawbacks very believable. Her construction of the universe portrayed in the book is also nuanced, multifaceted and internally consistent, with lots of factions and plenty of room for intrigue and outright antagonism. The internal life of her characters, chiefly Edie, and her unwilling bodyguard Finn, who comes across as pure chronicles of Riddick Vin Diesel, is also highly detailed. We understand their wants and desires, their private tragedies and fears, and the pace and the plotting is masterful. I was sorry I came to the end of Song of Scarabius. Thank God there's another book on the way. Sarah Creasy is a writer who knows how to write science fiction that delivers the goods. Four stars. Song of Scarabius is available in Australia from EOS. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au 
for links to the featured author's websites and for details of their publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2010. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.